and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. The local elections may be done and dusted, but it's beginning to feel a bit like general election fever is already gripping Westminster. Rishi Sunak is under pressure to show he can move on fast from last week's big losses, and the Prime Minister has been busy making announcements about GPs, doing battle with the Archbishop of Canterbury, and taking on his party's hardcore Brexiters. But can Sunak get his party back into the running for the next general election? Labour did well last Thursday, but not quite well enough to be sure of a guaranteed path to number 10, despite Keir Starmer's additional reaction. Westminster is abuzz with talk of hung parliaments and coalition deals. We've been here before, of course, and it doesn't always work out well for all parties involved. So what do they and we need to be thinking about this time? And from sharing power to giving power away, remember levelling up? The Conservative Party's flagship agenda at the 2019 election was tied to what seems to be a shared belief across the political divide that power needs to be devolved from Westminster. But is more devolution certain to lead to a boost in regional growth? A new IFG report has the answers. Joining me throughout are an IFG duo who pay very close attention to all the ups and downs in British government and what might happen next, and that's Kath Haddon and Giles Wilkes. Hi both. Good morning. Hello. And I'm delighted to be joined throughout by Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at London's Queen Mary University and author of a number of books, including most recently, The Conservative Party After Brexit, Turmoil and Transformation. Hi Tim, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, and thank you for having me. So let's kick off by looking at the Conservative Party after the local elections. Rishi Sunak is definitely trying to play down any sense of turmoil. But what are his prospects now for transforming the party's electoral hopes in time for the next general election? He's been busy this week doing battle with his party over Brexit, announcing new plans to help GPs and heading into a predictable collision with the House of Lords over the controversial illegal migration bill. Giles. You used to work in number 10. What will the mood have been like after this set of election results? Well, yeah, funnily enough, I was there in 2019 when it was the um, the comparators and it was pretty dire. But then at the time, it must have been like the, the Alamo right, back there. That there were so many assaults coming from all directions that simply losing councillors was seen as one of the more minor ones. Um, I think the mood must be pretty grim because they thought they were going to play this very clever game of setting expectations around a big round number of a thousand seats and then quietly snickering to themselves that we'll only lose 700 and look like we have continued the improvement we've seen since Truss and Johnson and it keeps the story intact. So when around early afternoon it became obvious that they were heading for more than a thousand, I think with that strategy falling to pieces, the direness of the situation must have been really apparent and they were falling back on in my view, fairly weak lines around the idea that, okay, well, it's been bad for us, but nobody's fully accepted the Labour vote, as if the Lib Dems having 20% in these polls on a national equivalent basis is somehow great news for the Conservatives. So I think it's really, really poor, and it can build a sort of momentum because you need those councillors, your ground troops in part for the next election campaign. And it also changes the narrative around Rishi Sunak's sensible, technocratic and sort of lower pressure government being the answer for the Tories, it might mean there's more chances of rebellions and panic. So I reckon pretty grim in Downing Street right now. 
And what do you think, Tim? Do you agree with that? Yes, I would. I mean, I, I think clearly there was expectation management going on, but this is worse than the Conservative Party expected. There will be some pressure on Rishi Sunak, although I don't think it will result in any kind of leadership spill. I still can't see Boris Johnson as the answer to Conservative prayers, although you know the media are giving quite a lot of prominence to this Conservative Democratic organisation. There's the CDO, who are basically Boris's zombie army, hoping to kind of lever him back into number 10 and you know using the local election results as justification perhaps for you know some of their criticisms of Sunak so uh, I don't think it's going to be completely destabilizing but I think Giles is absolutely right to say that it really has um, put the mockers on the idea of momentum as far as Rishi Sunak is concerned. The one thing I'd say in addition to all of that and this was apparently doing the rounds on the Tory WhatsApp straight after you know they got to the thousand mark and they were saying nobody you know, start causing problems now for for Rishi. And they were arguing Rishi's actually much more popular than the Conservatives, and that still seems to be holding up. So despite what you say about, you know, is the sort of technocratic kind of we're not governing as badly as we used to be argument isn't working for them for the Conservative brand, there's still an argument for why they're sticking with Rishi. So that's why I think it's more likely to be what he is choosing to do. So it's descending into these policy debates. Do they go you know, back to the sort of populist tropes that, that were working for Boris Johnson, or have they gone too far on that direction? And and again, you know, we've been debating different coloured walls endlessly, it feels like, for, for several years, but they've got this coalition of many different audiences. So how do you try to appeal to all those different audiences? So that's where I think they are at greatest risk over the next few months is not having a clear hand on the tiller deciding on their direction of travel and it ends up being back to more chaos because they just can't figure out where to position themselves policy-wise. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And if I imagine that if Conservative strategists could find a way of cloning Rishi Sunak and having several hundred of him in the House of Commons as the representatives of this party, then they'd be absolutely delighted. The trouble is, for the neutral observer, they're also the party of Rhys Mogg and Lee Anderson and Stop the Boats and, and all of that kind of stuff. And he's not a big enough character to redefine the party on his own. He's he's sort of a quiet, competent, nice guy, but he's not big enough to move the whole party, in my view. Charles, where do you think this week's sort of rowback on the retained EU law bill fits into this picture? Because it's the sort of same part of the party that, that Tim was talking about, which are still thinking that Boris Johnson is the answer, who are the most unhappy around that sort of admission that actually the push to, to review and consider whether to appeal or retain all these different bits of EU law is actually having has had counterproductive incentives within Whitehall. It's made people think about what they want to keep rather than what yeah. they want to get rid of. I mean, several points to make here. The technocrat in me would say, great, he's he's ro- rode back from doing something that was clearly mad and taking up all lots of official time and really worrying business who had no idea what the legal situation would have been had that deadline come. He's again continued the strategy we saw under the Windsor framework of taking on and isolating the sort of ultras. So that's great for a centrist like me. I've got to be honest, though, I can't see many people moving over to the Rishi column saying, well, I, I was uncertain about the Conservatives, but now that he's being sane on Brexit, I will I will move over to him. So in a sense, he's being very statesmanlike. He's doing something that's good for the country that I don't think has much of a political uh upside to him. But there wasn't much political upside in doing what the the ultra said either. He was in a no-win situation, so do the right thing. And Tim, do you think that this that his his willingness to to row back on the real bill 
shows that Sunak's calculation is that the hardline Brexiters actually aren't as much of a threat to him now as he he might have feared. There was one Tory backbencher, I think, quoted as saying, a government that declares war on its backbenchers does not have much of a future. But is that a bit of an empty threat these days? Well, I think given the you know rebellion on the uh, Windsor framework was so small, I mean, it was 22, I think, wasn't it, Conservative MPs? I don't think he does have much to fear now. I think we have reached peak ERG. In fact, we probably reached it a long time ago. Uh, and you know, that's not necessarily where the, the threat is coming from, if there's any threat at all. I mean, picking up on what Giles said, I guess there is an extent to which some, if you like, traditional Tory voters in the so-called blue wall might regard uh, what they're doing on the uh, EU legislation and, and what they've done on the Windsor framework as, uh, you know, giving them a sense that, you know, that they've got their party back. This is rather more sensible, more pragmatic uh, conservatism, you know, low tax, uh, if possible, <laughs> low spend, definitely. And the kind of thing that, you know, people have often voted conservative for before. So it might have an upside. I think one of the interesting things about the local election results is if you dig into um, some of the, you know, the, the research done on them, it does look as if Brexit is beginning to be less of a factor in you know voters' calculi about uh, who they're going to vote for. Um, Labour did seem to win over voters in a number of um, so-called red wall areas, or particularly Leave voters, um, while the Liberal Democrats managed to you know pick up quite a few Remain voters as well. But I think you know that's quite important. That unwinding, if you like, of the electoral coalition that Boris Johnson built post-2016, helped actually by Theresa May, um, could be a real factor in 2024. And in some ways, I think, you know, when we, we talk about stopping the boats, um, we're really seeing a rearguard action on the part of the Conservative Party to try and revivify that coalition absent Brexit, if you like. Whether that will work or not, I'm not so sure. Oh, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it, because I wanted to move on, actually, Kath, to talk about the illegal migration bill, which has come back into prominence this week as it has reached the Lords. And, of course, there, unsurprisingly, is generating considerable opposition, including from the Archbishop of Canterbury. But this is precisely the battle the government wants to be having, isn't it? Well, yes and no. Um, I mean, this is the interesting thing, you know, to contrast that with what's happened with rural retained EU law bill. You know, it is another area where they are going um, still with the sort of the same playbook, uh, sort of continuation from, from the Boris Johnson government and stop the boats is a big plank for them going forward because they think you know, that's an important area to show progress or to galvanise public opinion and, and get votes. Obviously, we know 2019, a big part of that for uh, Boris Johnson, the run up to the 2019 election was showing all these people stopping him doing what, you know, give me the mandate, they're stopping me doing what we're doing. I have no idea whether, you know, there are still people in number 10 now in the Conservative Party who are looking for similar opportunities. But yes, if so, I'm sure the Lords will give them um, some aspects of that. That said, I mean, there is a whole debate here about whether this is actually anything covered by the Salisbury Convention, which is a convention that the House of Lords won't wreck or completely block anything that's in a manifesto. This isn't a manifesto policy, but obviously it is one that's quite central to the government and will be presumably part of future manifestos. And maybe they can argue it was connected to previous. But the House of Lords, in the end, it puts up a massive fight, but it doesn't actually very often completely block things or wreck things. It's usually very aware of its situation. There might be a lot of throwing around noises about, oh, don't do that, or we'll come along and reform you. But 
no one's going to believe that. So that's not going to work either. So ultimately, all you can do is try and appeal to, you know, the peers' sense of fair justice about the primacy of the Commons and the fact that the Conservative Party have got this democratic mandate. Or you can win the argument, in which case you've actually got to engage with them on the details of the bill, on the amendments they're putting forward, on the arguments that they and other Conservatives, because remember Theresa May was also quite critical of this, are putting forward about this bill. And that's why I think, again, it's this really interesting question about who is Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister. Does he again go for a pragmatic solution or does he look for a massive fight because he thinks that's what's going to play off for him in the long run? Tim, Obviously, the stopping the boats was was one of Sunak's five points in his five-point plan. Do you see him now sticking with that as his sort of agenda in the run-up to the election? Do you think that that is the calculation that these are the, the five points which are ultimately going to bear fruit in terms of turning the polls around for him? Or do you think he's going to increasingly come under pressure to do something a bit different? Well, I mean, given how often he repeats them, I'm sure <laughs> that indicates that, you know, he does see those as as the key, partly because I think he believed, at least when he, you know, first set them out, that they were going to be quite easily achievable. I'm not so sure the one on inflation uh, looks like that now, perhaps. Um I think the problem for Rishi Sunak is that, and indeed the Conservative Party, is that the economic fundamentals are really very, very bleak. Uh, It doesn't look, to me anyway, as if he's going to get people's real wages rising, you know, within six months, 12 months of an election, which is normally what governments seek to do. It's going to be quite difficult, I think, to get some really serious tax cuts out there before the election. It's certainly sufficient to make a difference to the election. Growth looks like it's going to be pretty low. Um, and, and I think if you look at the state of the public services and you look at surveys of, of voters, you know, that is what they're very, very worried about, particularly the NHS. And, and I think you know, he might be able to settle some of these strikes. I mean, let's hope he does. But I'm not sure that that's going to really, really massively help the NHS, A, do anything about the backlog in terms of hospitals, or B, uh, do much in terms of GP waiting times. And as we heard, you know, on the doorstep and in surveys, that's something that a lot of people worry about. And this idea of getting pharmacists to do more may make a bit of a difference at the margins, but I, I just can't see it making enough difference to people's impressions of how, you know, the country's being run uh, to to really put the Conservatives back in contention big time. Charles, you watch all matters economic. Do you agree with that? I mean, obviously, in terms of when the next election is going to be, people are saying the Conservatives potentially might be sort of trying to calculate at what point there might be some good size for the economy in order to to go to the country. Is that likely? Well, uh, the trouble is, I mean, people are looking for echoes from previous elections. Is this 92 when the Conservatives got re-elected despite the fact that the recovery from the recession was barely in place. Or 97, where they got absolutely smashed despite the fact that it was the beginning of the one of the most glorious periods of economic expansion we've ever seen. Um, the one they might really be hoping for is 2015, where things have been pretty grim for a few years and there had been cost of living concerns. Remember Ed Miliband and energy price freezes and things like this. But in the last year, things just turned around oil prices fell, gas prices fell, people got that real wage boost that Tim referred to. And it was like, do you trust us or do you trust them? I I don't think any of those situations are actually going to apply in this situation. Uh, People's memories of poor public services and really, really bad economic outcomes. And this has been the worst cost of living crisis since the 50s. 
despite all of the different crises we had over that period, they're not going to be wiped away by a few months of things just turning up a little bit. And likewise with the NHS, people are not going to say, well, I finally got an NHS appointment. Everything's safe for the government. It's going to be one of those change elections. And people are going to look at 13 or 14 years and are going to ask themselves, could we be doing better or should we be sticking with this? So it's really hard to see how a year of improving any of these things, even if he knocks the ball out of the park, on every single one of these targets is going to make people change their minds. But it might add a couple of percent and change the size of Labour's likely victory. But in my opinion, it can't really save him. Well, that's a very nice segue into our next topic today when we want to talk about the possibility of uh, what's going to happen in the next general election. And, and the talk in Westminster has been about whether we're going to end up with another hung parliament and what that would mean for who forms the next government and how they do it. Kath, you'll remember all the speculation mm. uh, about hung parliaments before the 2010 election and then 2015 as well, of course, uh, with different outcomes. Is the conversation any different this time? It is very different this time, partly because I think so many memories of those last ones means that everyone's already got their talking points. I mean, 2010, which was what was extraordinary there was that we just, it'd been so long since any kind of hung parliament election. Obviously, there was the tail end of uh, Conservatives in 96 when they lost their minority uh, majority. But, you know, people just didn't know how it worked. So we spent a lot of time uh, going around explaining the different options for what can happen, confidence and supply agreements, minority government, all the rest of it. Uh, wasn't a lot of focus from people on the, the likelihood of coalition government. Uh, nobody really saw that coming. I mean, if anything, the problem with 2015 was that 2010 had so hyped the conversation that everyone was expecting it in 2015 and then the small majority is what surprised people. I think we're in danger of doing the same again. I you know, used to teach about intelligence failures and it was always people fighting the last war and reacting against the last intelligence failure. And it's the same with election predictions. People are always sort of reacting to what they got wrong last time round and failing to account for the twist this time round. So I think we need to be talking about all the different scenarios that could happen because, as we know, there are vulnerabilities in our constitution and because parties need to be preparing for it. But I do think it's just being a bit overhyped too early before we really know what the trajectory is for these electoral results and how much you can actually extrapolate from the locals. And as we have all definitely learned the lesson, uh, a lot can change in a year or 18 months or however long we have. Tim, we're going to get the same warnings from the Conservatives, aren't we? And we're really seeing the sort of Labour being in the pocket of the SNP, who would they go into a coalition with, coalitions of chaos. Do you think that these sorts of narratives are going to have the same cut through this time around as they apparently did in the past? Um, I doubt it, to be honest. I mean, I think Keir Starmer's actually playing this quite cutely. He's made it very obvious that a coalition with the uh, SNP or any kind of deal in some ways with the SNP is not on um, simply because he doesn't believe in the breakup of Britain and he won't therefore entertain it. And there's no love lost, obviously, between the SNP and, and Labour in Scotland, particularly now that Labour sent the possibility of winning some seats from the SNP. Uh, I think, you know, with regard to the Liberal Democrats, uh, again, I think he's probably right not to rule it out, not least actually, because it may assist with um, tactical voting in the sense of if Liberal Democrat supporters and Labour supporters think there is a possibility of some kind of deal, um, then, you know, that might actually make them slightly more inclined to vote for the other party in, in their constituencies uh, should they should they need to. I mean, I think that the, the Conservative 
press particularly uh, and the Conservative Party will obviously make a big thing of, of this, whether it has much traction, as I say, I'm not so sure. Uh, one thing does worry me, though, and uh, I guess Catherine and indeed you could speak to this in some ways, is, is the Conservatives uh, and their, their friends in the media um, suggesting that should you know, the Conservative Party, and I think this is unlikely, emerge as the largest party, and yet Labour find it easier to go into either a minority government or to put together a coalition, that that is somehow illegitimate. That is something that was warned about by the Conservative press in 2015 when they thought they were going to lose. It's complete rubbish, of course, constitutionally, um, but I do worry sometimes that that does have a little bit of traction with people who don't really understand the the constitutional situation, and and after all, why should they... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I can imagine the, the narrative. I mean, any time there's a hung parliament, the narratives are always a problem. The squatting in number 10 arguments and, and all the rest of it. And anything that then touches on how governments are formed, it's certainly something that, you know, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about of how do you uh, explain the constitutional stuff around this. I'm not so worried about that for one reason, which is the Conservatives can just stay on. There is an incumbency benefit to staying on and testing um, the will of the House and seeing if you can govern and then getting defeated in a vote of confidence. So if the Conservatives really wanted to stay on as the largest party is a minority and try and tough it out, they can do so. But, you know, there are, there is a system in place for, for dealing with that. And that would probably frustrate Labour, but there isn't an automatic argument. Unless you can put it together, a coalition, and say we've got a majority, you know, it is invalid for you to stay in, in which case that could put pressure on the Conservatives to resign. But otherwise, there is a mechanism for that. But given where the Conservatives are, given everything, you know, we've just been talking about, facing the prospect of governing in those circumstances, especially when you've got an alternative government kind of sitting on the, in the wings saying, what the hell are you doing? Mm. And then the media pylon that you would get in those circumstances, it just feels pretty implausible. Mostly, I mean, I'm, I'm one for always warning about don't, you know, assume that good behaviour will happen. But mostly, the politicians know when the game is up. And if the game is up, you know, they will go. I think for me, the bigger worry is we haven't had a a close one in terms of numbers. It's not really a question of hung parliament or not. It's really about the numbers. And if there is a situation where there are different plausible governments, but none of them can get to a majority easily, you know, because coalition's just not on the agenda, then yeah, some kind of argument about the plausibility of it could be quite damaging for the constitution. But I think in the end, it will solve itself. We could just go straight back into another election. I guess, well, wouldn't that be joyful? <laughs> well, it happened in 74, didn't it? Yeah, Giles, just to go back to the Lib Dems briefly, yeah. Danny Finkelstein wrote in the Times this week that Ed Davey had lost negotiating power yeah. by making it clear that he would never do a deal with the Conservatives, so was therefore less likely to get, if he was in negotiations with Labour, less likely to get what he wanted there. Do you agree with that analysis? I would say, I mean, they certainly wouldn't be in as strong a position as they were apparently in 2010 when they could quite credibly say we could be keeping Gordon Brown in power if you want and Mm. extracted what they felt was quite a lot from the Conservatives as a result in that coalition agreement. As it is, the Conservatives still negotiated extremely well and gave away things to the Lib Dems that they suspected the Lib Dems weren't going to enjoy in the end. And as Kath has commented there, if the Lib Dems had kept Gordon Brown in power, when it the point is the, the government 
losing loads of seats and trying to stay in, the voters look at it and go, you just sort of lost. You, mm. You're the ones showing losses in your column. So surely you need to go. It's, so it's a fairly non-credible offer to say we're going to try and keep the government in. And so I think the minor party is always in a really weak position. Danny Finkelstein is absolutely right. And the Lib Dems have moved further cl closer to the Labour Party sentimentally in any case. Mm. So they are in an extremely weak position from that point of view. However, um, you know, they've got other attractions for the Labour Party. They are able to fight the Conservatives in places where the Labour Party still can't, in part thanks to Corbyn, but in part thanks to this very successful sort of electoral strategy they've been pursuing in the Blue Wall. And Starmer still has an awkward squad of his own. So having a, a rump of relatively reasonable centrist Lib Dem MPs kind of on your side is of, of value to him. So the important thing about the failure of the predictions of 2010 and the coalition that emerged, which nobody predicted, nobody saw that coming at all, even after the result came along, is it was an act of leadership. And politicians can change things by acts of leadership. And they can change people's presuppositions about what is possible. You can't rule out Starmer and Davy just having a vision and saying, look, we could actually make this work in a different way and suddenly it looking obvious. But this is why I'm a bit frustrated by the speculation at the moment, and especially the attempts to try and get, you know, Starmer, or actually they tried with Sunak um, the other day as well, to say whether they would or would not have a deal. Until you know the numbers, you yeah. just don't know what you can do. And what, you're not going to give away your negotiating hand beforehand. Yes, of course, there's public interest in talking about this stuff, but that's for all of us to talk about. But no politician, unless it's politically valuable for you, like ruling out, you know, relationship with the SNP, you're not going to commit to it. So the journalists sort of pressing on at it again and again mm. is just a bit exhausting. Mm. And I, th I also would say, I mean, I think there is an assumption somehow that the Lib Dems would go for coalition if they could get one. I'm not so sure that that's the case after their experience with the Conservatives between 2010 and 2015. I, I would have thought they might well try if, if necessary for a confidence and supply arrangement rather than uh, full-blown coalition. But I actually think, I mean, minority government is possibly underpriced, partly because we have this view of it that it's incredibly chaotic. But again, it depends entirely on the numbers. If you are within 20 seats of a, a majority um, and, you know, you've got different parties you can play off against each other, that puts you in a stronger position. Yeah. And we know that even with a massive majority, splits in your own party can be more problematic than winning support from other parties. Well, exactly. I was going to say, I mean, in some ways, for years now, we've effectively had governments governing in, in some certain Precisely. circumstances as minorities. Yeah. And I think that actually the problem and the, th the thing that Westminster hasn't quite got its head around is, is, is that that is the reality. And the, the mistake that governments with a notional majority have been making is to continue to try to govern as though that's a rock solid yeah. majority, yeah. which you can call in aid, which will be there behind you on every vote. And to be sort of surprised when that doesn't work out. And yeah. actually, there's a bit of a mind shift. And it's almost slightly irrelevant, whether it's a, whether it's a minority government, whether it's a small yeah. majority government, actually, the same mind shift needs to happen. But yeah. it's, it's a cultural issue as well, because there is this idea that party bargaining has got to be adversarial, you've got to win. You've got to do over the others and win rather than this idea that you can be constructive and compromise. And the reality is we know behind the scenes, usual channels or That's friendships across all the party, time. It's always yeah. happening. There's loads of legislation that gets through that way, loads of bits where parties work together. It's just that we have this perception that it's all about the big fight. And it's one reason not to go to the 70s for any analogies here, because if any, I'm sure we've all enjoyed that play, The House, about yeah. that phenomenal five-year fight. This house. And, this house, of course. 
um, and the um, and the tight margins because everybody would vote very reliably for their party. Whereas, let's face it, if there is a minority Labour administration, the Conservatives will have lost, call it seventy or eighty seats. There's going to be a fight amongst the Conservatives as to what kind of a party they're going to yeah. be. The idea that they act as a disciplined bloc after uh, attacking the Labour government throughout is rather. Yeah, and it's the age-old rule with this stuff. You know, to govern as a minority, all you've got to do is stop the opposition being a coalition against you. Yep. Tim, uh, looking back now on the deal that Theresa May did with the DUP, the confidence and supply arrangement, do you think there's any lessons that parties ought to be reflecting on from that? If they do, you know, if there's a party that does decide to go for some type of more formal arrangement in this situation? Well, uh, one would have thought that if it were the Liberal Democrats, they will um, go for something much more formal and, and, and in some senses much more comprehensive than the DUP did. I mean, essentially, the DUP was to some extent sort of pup on Brexit, um, but it also went for, you know, a large amount of money. Uh, I think the Liberal Democrats would want rather more uh, than that. I don't think they'll get you know, probably what they want, which is, you know, some something on electoral reform. Uh, I can't see Labour promising that. But I mean, I think there are probably a number of policy areas. And I think we'd see, a, you know, far more of those in any agreement than we did uh, in that Conservative DUP agreement. Okay, let's turn now from sharing power to giving power away. Front and centre of the Conservative Party's manifesto at the last election was its pledge to level up the country. And tied to its commitment to boost regional economic growth was a pledge to devolve more power away from Westminster to local politicians. Gordon Brown's prescription in his review published last year was remarkably similar, linking devolution and economic growth. But a new IFG report says the answer is not quite so simple. Its author, IFG Deputy Chief Economist Tom Pope, joins us now. Hello, Tom. Hi, all. So, Tom, you looked at the international evidence on devolution. What did you discover? I think that the key takeaway from, from all the analysis that we did, which is particularly looking at sort of various studies that have tried to get at this link between devolution and growth, is that the answer is it's really inconclusive, that there are, there are some cases where devolution has contributed to growth. But if you look at the evidence in the rounds, um, really what you'd have to take away is, in general, on average, there's no relationship. Now, what that doesn't mean is that devolution can't lead to growth, that there aren't instances where devolving the right policies to the right level can lead to better policy that over time will lead to better growth. But what it does mean is that politicians can't see devolution as this sort of magic lever that you can pull that no matter how you do it is going to lead to better outcomes. I think, you know, both, both parties are going to be um, going to the next election, I think, pledging further devolution, particularly within England towards mayors. Um, given that money is likely to be tight, there's not going to be lots to spend. They'll be relying on changes to the way policy is made to improve regional performance. Um, that's not a bad thing, but I think our big takeaway is that you need to make sure you do it well and do it in the right way. So what we do is set out a framework looking at the key costs and benefits of devolution and the way that they apply to different policies that we hope can be a guide for this and future governments for how they can approach devolution in England in particular in a, in a systematic and evidence-based way rather than, say, in one that's treating devolution as more an article of faith. And actually, we do find that devolution can and should contribute to, to regional growth in England, certainly given our starting point that there's a good case for several economic policies, for example, on transport, on skills, on some R&D, to be devolved particularly to co coherent sort of economic geographies, local labour market areas, which actually is the, 
the areas that the mayors and combined authorities tend to cover. So there is room to go further there. But at the same time, we shouldn't be devolving all economic policies. There are some like regulations, social security, um, university policy, for example, that belong best at the centre. And how does the government's approach, which was uh, set out in a white paper and has been being pursued since, how does that match up to what we found in this piece of work? I think the government needs deserves a lot of credit for actually the progress it's made on devolution. Certainly of all the, the different strands that were in the white paper, that's where the, the biggest advance has been made. Most recently, we saw the trailblazer devolution deals announced for Greater Manchester and the West Midlands, which included many of the powers that we call for to be devolved to that level, although not all. And we think there's further that you could go, particularly in areas like employment support, which remains mostly the preserve of DWP, uh, the Department of Work and Pensions. But actually, the really big advance there as well is the way that local governments are being funded. And so one thing that we highlight is that the existing approach to funding local economic policies, which tends to be these competitive funding pots that different areas can bid into and then sort of beauty contest that central government decides what is most worthy is is really unproductive and sort of undermines many of the potential benefits of devolution. If if funding is only determined based on what central government thinks is good, you're not really making use of that, that local knowledge that should be so important. And if you're having to bid separately for your skills projects and your employment projects and your transport projects, actually you're not able to coordinate policy into coherent local economic strategies, which we find should be one of the key benefits of devolution. So the fact that the trailblazers are moving in that direction by having single pots of funding is really good. I think there's further that the government needs to go there, particularly for other kinds of authorities. So for example, we haven't heard what simplified funding means for local authorities or for county councils in in more rural areas, for example. I think the, the other area that actually requires more of a fundamental shift in in how central government thinks about these things is that as we devolve more policy locally, central government needs to think about what that means as what its role is in those devolved policy areas. How can it be enabling local governments to make better decisions in those areas? So for example, it now has a really important role to play in ensuring that it collects and disseminates consistent data across different areas. That's both important to feed into the policy development process to help local governments design a good skills policy, for example. But it's also critically important for us to actually understand and learn from from different areas and what they're doing. One of the key benefits of devolution should be we effectively have lots of different policy experiments going on in different parts of the country. But if you don't actually evaluate how things are working and what's leading to better outcomes, you don't gain anything from that and different areas can't learn from one another. So I think it's a little less tangible, I suppose. But I think one key question for this and future governments is, as we devolve more power, and I think that's the direction both are going, how does central government need to reorient itself, if you like, towards the mayors in particular? Giles, what do you make of Tom's conclusions? I'm very impressed by the report. And I'm not actually surprised that it's had to make an ambiguous conclusion on the subject of whether devolution has a sort of straight arrow relationship with growth. I mean, what's really interesting, I mean, it's it's difficult because each country is unique. We start from a uniquely centralised position, which is why, despite reading this and, and in, you know, greatly learning a lot from it, I still think that these major parties are going in the right direction. And to add a couple of elements that I know Tom has reflected on as well in producing this, there's a, a classic debate between having the brainy, brainy people at Whitehall making decisions and 
the advantages of scale you get from having everyone doing it there and sending it out to lots of smaller units out there which are closer to the to the the situation on the ground but a, a key advantage of doing the latter is accountability and incentives in that no matter how well meaning the civil servant at the center making a decision about transport policy in some region say or the skills or or, or the employment support isn't going to have the same daily concern for the issue and it's it's just plain weird to expect the voters out there in those devolved areas to be somehow finding their way to Whitehall to understand the decision and affect it. Putting the decisions closer to the voters are likely to give the incentives to the people down there, which are going to be more consistent as well. What we found, and the IFG has illustrated brilliantly for the last couple of decades, is that there's been really inconsistent policymaking at a national level. At a local level, there tends to be much more of a consensus about what needs to be done and it's kept to. And that inconsistency is one of the bigger problems. It's better to have a sort of second best sub sub sort of scale unit making decisions but sticking to them than trying to do everything up here. So I think it's a really welcome report from that, in particular for this message that they shouldn't be treating it as a straightforward formula to just send everything out there. Take it differently policy by policy. And Tim, as we've said, both parties seem to be talking about the same things here. The reality is when you actually get your hands on the levers of power as a politician, is it sometimes feels a bit less attractive to, to give that power away straight away. So do you think whoever wins the next election, this is a, an agenda that, you, that is going to continue to have legs? Or do you think it might not all go as fast as, as the parties are implying? Well, I mean, I think the problem is always that politicians will play lip service to devolution or localism or whatever the phrase is uh, of the moment. Um, but when it comes, as you say, um, to, to giving away power, and particularly when it comes to giving away any kind of financial power, uh, and particularly, obviously, when we're talking about local government, the, the possibility of them actually raising more of their revenue rather than relying on the centre uh, to actually distribute it, um, we very rarely get as much progress uh, as we like. And, and obviously, there will sometimes be um, big conflicts. Uh, and I think housing is the obvious one here, where uh, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for whoever is in government, and we're seeing that with the current government, to actually get the kind of uh, development that you know people are crying out for in some ways, especially younger voters, perhaps, if they're going to rely on local government to deliver that, because you know local government finds it very, very difficult to get it past their their own communities, and I think it probably will re require uh, the centre to pull some levers there and to pull rank. I think that the dynamics of Whitehall are all also really important here as well. That particularly if you're say sitting in the Department for Education or the DWP your inclination is very much going to be not to give away the sort of power that sits within your fiefdom. And in particular, you know, if you're sitting in thinking about employment support in quite a siloed specific way, you maybe don't fully appreciate the, the potential synergies that could come with designing that at the same level as skills policy, for example. And that's why I do think it's really important if there is going to be progress made both in this government and future, that you really do have that support and push from the centre of government. So number 10, the Treasury Cabinet Office, and particularly the Treasury, um, to, to really put pressure on those other departments as well and say, no, actually, the best way to deliver this policy is more locally, and therefore, you've got to give up that control. If it's just left to individual departments, um, I think it's much less likely to happen. And Tim, we have a whole new cadre of, of politicians who are players now in this, this whole debate, these increasingly prominent mayors 
I mean, you saw with COVID, I guess, with the pandemic, their sort of attempt to flex their muscles a bit, to work together as a voice on some things, as well as to, as you would expect, advocate for their for their regions. Do you have you given much thought to the way in which elected mayors are, are ch- changing the shape of British politics at all, or do you think it remains a Whitehall game? Well, no. What will be interesting, I think, is if Labour does get into power, is the relationship between those mayors and the Labour government, because of course many of those mayors that we are now most familiar with are Labour figures. And at the moment, in some ways, it's quite easy for them to bash the centre because the centre is Conservative run. Whether it will be quite so easy for them to do so uh, with a Labour government will, will be interesting to see. We will wait to find out if that's the outcome of the election. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening at home. And thank you to Kath Haddon, Tom Pope, Giles Wilkes, and especially to Tim Bale. Remember, you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms and be sure to subscribe and give us a review. And while you're there, subscribe to the newly rebooted IFG Events podcast channel too. All our best events now landing in your podcast feeds. Tom's new paper on devolution is on our website, as is a must-read new batch of our Ministers Reflect interviews. Rather a lot has happened in this four-day week, how are we going to cope with just a two-day weekend? See you next week.